Jeremiah 29 in your Bibles, please. The thoughts of God toward you. A couple of weeks ago in our time in Jeremiah 27, we talked about the, a concept which I call late stage submission. And I coined this term to describe a circumstance in which the consequences of our actions have already played out and that the best way to reflect our repentant heart was not to expect God to deliver us from those consequences, but rather to submit ourselves in humility to those consequences and live within them. Now, as we spoke of this, one of the important things to understand, and that we'll consider significantly more in our time together this evening, is that God as he speaks about the captivity to the nation, the captivity he's about to send them to, a captivity which has been spoken of in terms of judgment for, for chapters and chapters now, is actually being reflected by God, not just in terms of judgment, but also in terms of mercy. That instead of the nation being wiped off the face of the earth, as so many other nations have been, Instead of a nation absolutely disappearing, as has happened so many of the nations that we read about in the Old Testament, this nation was going to be spared through the Babylonian captivity. And though it was indeed judgment, it was also thus a mercy. A chance for the nation, if we can call it this, to regroup, to reconsider their decisions, and then be restored by God's grace to the land of promise. And this is what God is going to emphasize in Jeremiah 29, that though we have seen particularly the elements of judgment as it has related to the coming captivity and the captivity that has already taken place, the first two deportations, we can also see it as a mercy and God is going to emphasize that. So we pick up in chapter 29, verses 1 through 3. The Bible says this. Now these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem unto the residue of the elders which were carried away captives, and to the priests, and to the prophets, and to all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon, after that Jeconiah the king, and the queen, and the eunuchs, the princes of Judah... And Jerusalem and the carpenters and the smiths were departed from Jerusalem by the hand of Elisa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, the king of Judah, sent unto Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, saying, and we'll stop on that point for a moment. We read in Jeremiah 29 the contents of a letter. Jeremiah 29 is going to primarily comprise the contents of a letter that Jeremiah is writing to those who have already gone into captivity. So here he is writing a letter and he's sending it to those who are now in Babylon, uh, who are now in the, the vicinity around Babylon who have been carried away by Nebuchadnezzar. And the text takes care to tell us that this captivity was what we refer to as the second deportation when Jeconiah and his queen and eunuchs and princes and carpenters and smiths were taken from the land. So uh, recall in the first deportation, uh, there were the, the princes, the, the sons of princes. This is when Daniel and Hananiah and Azariah and Mishael were taken. And then as we've said many times before, we'll, we'll, we'll bring ourselves back into this context in a moment. The second 
second deportation uh, was the king, Jeconiah, his queen. And uh, we would add to this list uh, the eunuchs and the smiths and such. But also in that deportation, Ezekiel, right? Ezekiel went in that deportation as well. And verse 3 tells us that this letter was sent by a man named Ellis, uh, was sent in the hands of two men. One was Elasah, the son of Shaphan. And then the other was Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah. Now, each of these names individually does not pop too much up in our mind. But when they are presented together, this changes things a little bit. Shaphan and Hilkiah. Now, Shaphan and Hilkiah were the two men who, in 2 Kings 22, in the days of Josiah, were cleaning out the temple, which was in utter disrepair, and found this, happened upon this scroll. And they read the scroll, and that scroll happened to be the law of God. And they went up to Josiah and said, hey, we found this scroll. Can we read it to you? And Josiah said, yeah, sure. And they, they said, we need to read it to you. So they read it, and Josiah said, uh-oh, if this is true, our nation is in trouble because we have been violating God's law. Because no one had read God's law in who knows how long. They didn't even know... Literally, they did not even know what the scroll was when they found it in the temple because the temple was in abject disrepair. It was just some random scroll. They read it and said, wow, if this is true, we're in trouble before the Lord. And that's when Josiah began the campaign of repentance uh, uh, in, in the land. So now we have these two names put together again, and it seems as though there is not a lot of, re, uh, um, um, uh, not, not a lot of uh, um, question as to why. Now, we've also seen... Shaphan come up already. Remember in Jeremiah 26, when Jeremiah proclaims the truth before the Lord and the people want to kill him, and then the elders come out and they say, no, 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 we don't need to kill him, we need to listen to him. And they still wanted to stone, stone Jeremiah. And then there was a man who, who spared Jeremiah, who, whose hand saved Jeremiah, and his name was Ahikam, the son of Shaphan. And we know that Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, was the son of the Shaphan who found the scroll in the temple. Because in 2 Kings 22, Shaphan's son, Ahikam, is opera. He's, he's there. And so Ahikam was the son of the Shaphan that found the scroll in the days of Josiah. Very likely then that Elasa is Ahikam's brother. And that he, he is one of the ones that is being sent to Jerusalem by Zedekiah. And he is one of these ones who um, is taking this message from Jeremiah to the remnant. Now, the other man we have is Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah. Now, if we go back to Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 1, you'll find that Jeremiah has a father whose name is Hilkiah. Now, whether or not there's a connection between these Hilkiahs, we do not know. But what we would presume is because Hilkiah and Shaphan are mentioned together again, we would presume that Gemariah is in fact the son of the Hilkiah that was a partner of Shaphan in the days of Josiah and that this is Hilkiah's son and that these guys are still working together in the priesthood. Now we know as well that Jeremiah was of the sons of the priests of Anathoth. So it's quite possible that Jeremiah was another one of the sons of that Hilkiah who found the scroll in the temple. 
just to put a few of those pieces possibly together for you. There uh, were a lot of people that shared names, and so it's not always the definitive. But when we see Shafin and Hilkiah together, that kind of puts that flag that says, wait a minute, I've seen these two names together before. And so we might presume that Hilkiah's son, Gemariah, and um, Shafin's son, Elasa, are still working together. They're, they're still they're, they're partners, just like their fathers were. And they are commissioned by Zedekiah uh, unto Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar the king. And as they go to Babylon, they carry letters to other people. And one of those letters was Jeremiah's letter. And then, as I mentioned, it's quite possible that Gemariah is Jeremiah's brother. Uh, at which point there would be a good connection there as well. Well, and so we know these things and, and there's some speculation there. As always, let me, let me give you that quick context, right? Um, Jeconiah was also called Jehoiachin, was also called Coniah. He was the son of Jehoiakim who reigned for 11 years before being killed by Nebuchadnezzar. He reigned for three months before Nebuchadnezzar deposed him and took him in 597 in the second deportation to Babylon. And we are after that, that deportation of 597 was the deportation in which Ezekiel was taken uh, to Babylon. He ended up in that camp outside the river Kibar. And Jeremiah is writing to a group of captives in Babylon. Let's now discover what this letter has to say, beginning in verse 4, reading through verse 7. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, unto all that are carried away captives, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem unto Babylon. Build ye houses. And dwell in them and plant gardens and eat fruit of them. Take ye wives and beget sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters that ye may be increased there and not diminished and seek the peace of the city whither I have caused you to be carried away captives and pray unto the Lord for it for in the peace thereof shall ye have peace. So God's message to those in Babylon, God's message to those Jews in Babylon is that they should get comfortable. That they should get comfortable there. They should build houses. They should dwell in houses. They should not just build houses, but they should plant gardens and eat the fruit of those gardens. The essence of settling in. I remember when my wife and I first came up to Buffalo uh, seven and a half years ago now, and we spent the first year in a rental house. And one of the things I had the hardest time doing in that rental house was investing in it in any way, shape, or form. I didn't want to paint the walls. I didn't want to hang pictures. I didn't want to do anything. I didn't want to plant a garden because it's not mine, right? It's not mine. I really never felt settled into it because it, it's not mine. I'm renting it. Well, those that were in Babylon might have kind of felt that way. This is not our homeland. This is not where we're going to live. And they weren't settling in. And Jeremiah is telling them here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, settle in. You're going to be here a while. You're not going anywhere. Get comfortable. Now, naturally, this could be, and we'll see the conflict. Uh, remember last week we were talking about that false prophet Hananiah, And as we considered the false prophet Hananiah, um, he was very hostile to Jeremiah and his message with the yokes, right, that says that that the nations had been delivered into the hand of, of Nebuchadnezzar. He was very hostile. We'll see a very similar thing happen this evening. So God says, take wives, have children, find spouses for your children, live life. And then he says, seek the peace of that city where you are captive and pray for the city in which you are because if there's peace in Babylon, 
then there will be peace for you. The idea here is this. Babylon's peace is your peace because you are now a long-term inhabitant of Babylon. Once again, that's the message. Get comfortable. You're going to be here for a while. That's what he's trying to say. And that's the message that God has for them. You're in Babylon now. God himself has put you there. Get used to it. God then comes back to his warnings about those who would seek to divert the nation from God's purposes. Verse 8 and 9. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, let not your prophets and your diviners that be in the midst of you deceive you, neither hearken to your dreams which ye caused to be dreamed. For they prophesy falsely unto you in my name. I have not sent them, saith the Lord. So God warns, don't let those that are there. Remember, Jeremiah has been contending with Hananiah. Hananiah might be dead at this point because he died a few months after their, their little duel, right? But uh, at the same time, Jeremiah knows that there have been prophets in Jerusalem who have been directly contradicting him. And so he writes to them and he says, don't let this happen to you. Don't let these prophets that are saying, you're going to go back soon. All of the vessels are going to come back soon. Don't let them deceive you. That is not the word of the Lord. That's the word from their own hearts. They are prophesying falsely to you in the name of the Lord. God had told the nation back in Jeremiah 25 that they would be in captivity for 70 years. But recall here that this is the nation that is in, or the, these are the people that are in Babylon. They probably did not hear Jeremiah's message when he preached it in Jerusalem that said that they would be there for 70 years. Well, now it was time for God to tell this to the captivity. So we read in verse 10. For thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my, here it is, notice this, perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. So God tells the nation to settle in and he tells them explicitly as he told Jerusalem in chapter 25, you are going to be there for 70 years. And we explored in chapter 25 why it was that they were going to be there for 70 years, right? 70 years represented 70 Sabbath years that the nation had failed to observe. And a Sabbath year took place every seven years, which means for 490 years, the nation of Israel had failed to observe a seventh year land fast. And God says the land is going to get its rest. And in order for the land to get its rest, you're going to be out of the land for 70 years, which is why it was a 70 year captivity. But remember in Jeremiah 25, as God focused on that 70 years, God's focus was judgment. I will judge you for your sin. You get 70 years. But here, God's focus is not on judgment, is it? God says, you're going to be here for 70 years, get comfortable, have children, yeah, have your children marry, build houses, plant gardens, eat of the fruit of your garden, and then at the end of the 70 years, I will perform the good word. My mercy will be found of you. And the reality of God's love is then magnified. In the next several verses, verse 11 and 12, for I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you an expected end. Then shall ye call upon me and ye shall go and pray unto me and I will hearken unto you. See, it's interesting because these false prophets thought 
that the only way they could encourage the people, the only way they could make the people feel good about themselves was to lie to them. Was to lie to them and to tell them that they were going to get out of Babylon soon. And here God is proclaiming you're not going to get out of Babylon soon. You are going to spend 70 years there, but it's a part of my love toward you. See, I know the thoughts I think toward you, God says. And the thoughts that I think toward you are not evil thoughts. They are thoughts of peace. I want, I have an expected end for you and I'm working it out if you'll only trust me. Now, as God tells the nation that his thoughts toward them are not of evil, this is an interesting thought, isn't it? Because there have been any number of times where the nation stirred up the anger of the Lord and he judged them accordingly. But it's important to understand that there's a difference between God getting angry at them and performing evil against them in judgment and the idea of his thoughts being evil toward them. And as always, I liken it to my children, right? There are times when my anger is kindled against my children. There are times when my judgment must fall upon them for their wrongdoing. But my intentions toward my children are never of evil. They are always toward their best, toward their success, toward my love for them. My chastening is done in love. My discipline is done in love. These things are an extension of my love to them. My disappointment in them is a disappointment of me wanting of them an expected end and seeking to cultivate in them that expected end. See, because I know the thoughts I think toward my children. And when I put my children on their bed or when I give them whatever form of discipline I need to give them, it is with a thought toward them of peace, not of evil, to bring about in them, to cultivate in them this little thing called character, virtue, discipline. It's love. And that's what God is telling them here. The captivity is a part of a process of purifying the nation from their stubbornness and from their rebellion. And you know what? Sometimes God has to go to some pretty dramatic lengths to break us, doesn't he? Sometimes God has to really go out of his way to break our stubborn wills. Sometimes God has to really go out of his way to break our rebellion. But it's not because he doesn't like us. Much to the contrary. The thoughts that he has toward us are thoughts of peace, not of evil, that he may bring about an expected end in us. And indeed, we've seen this. We see this in the 70 years of God with Israel. We have even seen this in the last 2000, in the scattering of the remnant, as God right now has put his people on pause, as it were, and yet we can still see God's faithfulness toward them. Now that faithfulness is not without difficulty. Who knew that six million Jews would have to die in a Holocaust in order to bring about such a worldwide sympathy for the Jewish nation that miraculously their homeland is given back to them so that God can fulfill the promises he has for them. That was a pretty harsh way to bring about enough sympathy to cause the world to give them that land back. And yet, even in that, can we not see that the thoughts toward them are to bring about an expected end? 
And he does this with us as well, does he not? In all of the suffering and the sorrow, God has an expected end into which he wants to bring the nation. And if they will but see it, God has for them this token of good that in 70 years he would perform his good word unto them and would bring them back to the land of promise. God continues on the, along this vein in verses 13 and 14. And ye shall seek me and find me when you search with all your heart. Search for me, excuse me, with all your heart. And I will be found of you, saith the Lord. And I will turn away your captivity. And I will gather you from all the nations and from all places whither I have driven you, saith the Lord. And I will bring you again into the place whence I caused you to be carried away captive. So in the midst of their captivity and their sorrow, God not only assures the nation of his love and his intentions toward them, but he also reminds the nation of the foundation of his character that anyone who seeks him will be found of him. That if a nation or an individual will seek God with their whole heart, a unified heart devoted to the desire to know the Lord, that any individual or nation will, be found, will find him. They'll find him. And the Lord tells them that if they would do such a thing, God would turn away their captivity and would gather them from the nations and bring them again to their land. Now, I mentioned this a while ago. I mentioned this in, in um, Jeremiah 25. I mentioned that when Daniel is reading in Daniel chapter 9, he is reading Jeremiah. And it is Jeremiah's prophecy of the 70 years that inspires Daniel to pray that great prayer of confession just before God reveals to him the 70 weeks of Israel. And I had mentioned that it was most likely not Jeremiah 25 that Daniel was reading, that it was most likely Jeremiah 29 that Daniel was reading. This is why I told you that most likely it was Jeremiah 29. See, because Jeremiah 25 was written in Jerusalem and probably hung out there at least for a while. But Jeremiah 29... It was sent to Babylon. It was floating around in Babylon. So would it be any wonder that Daniel would be able to get a copy of Jeremiah 29 and read this promise that God had made to the nation of the 70 years and the condition upon which God would return them to their land, which is this. If you seek me, you shall find me if you search with all your heart. And so that, with that in mind, let's go to Daniel for a moment and just see how this plays out. So Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. I'll read verses 1 through 5 and then we'll jump ahead a little bit. The Bible says this, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremy the pro Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. And I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed unto the Lord my God. What is he doing here? He is fasting. He is praying. He is mourning. He is setting his heart upon seeking the Lord. Why? Because he just read in Jeremiah, if you seek me, ye shall find me if you search with all your heart. So he positions his heart in every way in order to be found of the Lord. He fasts. He prays. He confesses his sin before the Lord. And he says in verse 4, I prayed unto the Lord my God and made my confession and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments, we have sinned and have committed iniquity. 
thee, and have done wickedly, and have rebelled, even by departing from thy precepts and from thy judgments. He continues to pray. We jump to verse 17. Now therefore, our God, hear the prayer of thy servant and his supplications, and cause thy face to shine upon the sanctuary that is desolate for the Lord's sake. O my God, incline thine ear. Be found of us. And here, open thine eyes and behold our desolations and the city which is called by thy name. For we do not present our supplications before thee for our righteousness, righteousness is, but for thy great mercies. Lord, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hearken and do. Defer not for thine own sake. O my God, for thy city and thy people are called by thy name. Can you see that Daniel's confession and prayer here is very much an outworking of Jeremiah 29. Daniel is effectively attempting to fulfill Jeremiah 29, that the Bible says that if they seek the Lord with all their heart, God would be found of them and would return them to their land. We go on to read, of, Je- uh, of the letter from Jeremiah to the people. G- continuing in verse 15. Because ye have said, the Lord hath raised us up prophets in Babylon, know that thus saith the Lord, the king that sitteth upon the throne of David, and of all the people that dwelleth in this city, and of your brethren that are not gone forth with you into captivity, thus saith the Lord of hosts, behold, I will send upon them the sword and the famine, and the pestilence, and will make them like vile figs that cannot be eaten, they are so evil. And I will persecute them with the sword and with the famine and with the pestilence. And I will deliver them to be removed to all the kingdoms of the earth, to be a curse and an astonishment and an hissing and a reproach among all nations, whither I have driven them, because they have not hearkened to my words, saith the Lord, which I sent unto them by my servants, the prophets, rising up early and sending them, but ye would not hear, saith the Lord. So once again, uh, God tells them, this is what I'm telling the people in Jerusalem. This is what the people in Jerusalem have to look forward to. And we've studied this ad nauseum, right? The sword, pestilence, and famine. We've told, we, I, I don't even know how many times I've read sword, pestilence, and famine in the book of Jeremiah, but it's been uh, quite a few times now at this point. Those in captivity, however, might be hearing other things. And as they think about this captivity and the fact that they're hanging around for 70 years, they might say, well, what does this mean for the people of Jerusalem? And so God is reiterating to them what he's been telling to the people in Jerusalem for any number of years now, that he's going to deliver the king, that he's going to deliver the city, that they're going to be uh, um, judged greatly by the sword, by pestilence and by famine. And he warned them that no one of the captivity should think that this is going to turn out any differently for those for the remnant that are not obeying the Lord, that are walking contrary to His word. Now, within the context, we understand this to be directly related to Jeremiah's attempts to counteract false teachers in their midst. We saw this in the last chapter with Hananiah, the false prophet, and we're going to see this again in the remainder of Jeremiah 29. We can see the typical measure of God's grace and His goodness and His justice toward the captivity, that God has delivered these messages by the mouth of Jeremiah unto the people, 
that he's not going to leave the captivity to rest in ignorance as it relates to God's dealing. So God is here telling the nation what to expect. And he's also warning them against these false teachers. As it stands, these, the, the captivity would rest under the disadvantage of not knowing everything Jeremiah had said and not seeing this prophet's duel between him and Hananiah and not knowing that Jeremiah uh, uh, had come out on top uh, quite decidedly and not being able to have the advantage of these signs. So God is going to take these signs to Babylon. So we continue in verses 20 to 23 where the Bible says this, Hear ye therefore the word of the Lord. All ye of the captivity whom I have sent from Jerusalem to Babylon. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, of Ahab, the son of Coliah, and of Zedekiah, the son of Maasiah, which prophesy a lie unto you in my name. Behold, I will deliver them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall slay them before your eyes. And of them shall be taken up a curse by all the captivity of Judah which are in Babylon, saying, The Lord make thee like Zedekiah and like Ahab, whom the king of Babylon roasted in the fire. Because they have committed villainy in Israel and have committed adultery with their neighbors' wives and have spoken lying words in my name which I have not commanded them, even I know and am a witness, saith the Lord. So God turns his attention toward two men here. Ahab, the son of Kaliah, and Zedekiah, the son of Maasiah. We know nothing of these men except what we find in this prophecy against them. These were men who were prophesying in the Lord's name, as Hananiah had done in Jerusalem, but were not prophesying the truth. We, we actually don't know explicitly what their message is, but God's message to them is quite clear and quite decisive. He tells them, he tells the nation that the king, of the, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, is going to slay them in front of their eyes. And this perhaps would not surprise us if we assume that their message is the same as Hananiah, that the message is that in two full years the nation will be returned to its land and that the vessels of the temple will be returned. That was a fairly seditious message, Right? inspiring the people to not settle in, to not be willing to rest under the authority of Babylon, and instead to maintain a rebellious heart. Would it be any surprise then that Nebuchadnezzar would choose to destroy them? And not only would they be slain, but Jeremiah prophesies here in the, word, in the name of the Lord that they would become a curse that their names would become a curse. So that when they wanted to curse someone, they would say, may you become like Ahab and may you become like Zedekiah, whom Nebuchadnezzar roasted in the fire. And God does give here the manner in which they would be destroyed. They would be roasted in the fire. And this could mean any number of things. However, I think we can pretty well understand what this is, right? There's another account in the scriptures of Nebuchadnezzar getting kind of angry at three men and saying, I'm going to toss you in a furnace. And he got so angry with them that he heated the furnace seven times up and he even killed the men that tossed those men into the fire. So Nebuchadnezzar seemed to like to roast people in the fire when he got angry at them. It wasn't, it wasn't a one-off with Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. This is what he did. He burned people in the furnace when he got angry at them. Now, that perhaps adds a little more impact to Daniel. Because Nebuchadnezzar seen a lot of people roasting that fire. And then they get thrown in, and they're not burning. 
And there's a fourth man in there. And that man is like the Son of God. Nebuchadnezzar had watched a lot of people burn, perhaps. And yet this was something new. So allow that to shade a little bit of your reading of Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael next time you're there in the book of Daniel. So he, these guys are going to get roasted in the fire, just like Nebuchadnezzar seemed to, to, to enjoy doing. And, and there's no reason to think that this is not what was going to happen to them. We, we have precedent for that. Well, what was the reason for such judgments? God says, now, as far as Nebuchadnezzar is concerned, we don't know why Nebuchadnezzar wants to destroy them. But as far as God is concerned, God says, I am judging you because you have committed villainy in Israel. You have committed adultery with your neighbor's wives and you have spoken lying words in my name. It would appear that, as we talked about last week, one of the characteristics of false teachers is that they are carnal. They follow their carnality. At the end of the day, when you find a false teacher, if you trace their life and their lifestyle, you're going to find carnality because they, their God is their belly. Their God is their passions. And here we find that these men, though they were speaking in the name of the Lord, they were also committing adultery with their neighbor's wives. They were bad representations of God. They were speaking falsely in his name. And so God allowed them to be destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. Now, following this letter from Jeremiah, Jeremiah sends this letter off and the people read it in the, in, in the captivity and, and they read of these things that, that, that God has said. And following this, there was a man in the captivity, another self-proclaimed prophet, who, that took exception to Jeremiah's prophecy. And he wrote back to Jerusalem expressing his anger at Jeremiah's words. And then God responds in kind to this man. And that's what we're going to read as we finish up the chapter. So we read in verses 24 through 29. Thus shalt thou also speak to Shemaiah the Nehelamite, saying. So now this is a message from Jeremiah to this man named Shemaiah, who is, again, of the captivity, and we'll see the context here. Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, saying, Because thou hast sent letters in thy name unto all the people that are at Jerusalem, and to Zephaniah, the son of Maasiah, the priest, and to all the priests, saying, The Lord hath made thee priest in the stead of Jehoiada, the priest, that ye should be officers in the house of the Lord for every man that is mad and maketh himself a prophet that thou shouldst put him in prison and in the stocks. Now therefore, why hast thou not reproved Jeremiah of Anathoth, which maketh himself a prophet to you? For therefore he sent unto us in Babylon, saying, The captivity is long. Build ye houses, and dwell in them, and plant gardens, and eat the fruit of them. And Zephaniah the priest read this letter in the ears of Jeremiah the prophet. So, God says that this next message is a message to Shemaiah the Nehelamite. And this message is given to him on occasion of the fact that he had sent letters in his name to the people of Jerusalem and specifically to a man named Zephaniah, the son of Maasiah. Now take note, this, is, uh, th this, this man, Zephaniah, the son of Maasiah, is not the Zephaniah who was just declared to die in the land. That was Zedekiah, the son of Maasiah, right? So they both have the same father, or at least the fathers have the same name. Quite possibly, Zedekiah, the one that's going to be roasted in the fire, is perhaps the brother 
of Zephaniah. Maybe, maybe not. We, we don't know. But they both have a father with the same, last, uh, same name, Maasiah. And Shemaiah writes unto Zephaniah and the other priests, telling them it is their job, effectively, to police those that would call themselves prophets in the land. And if a prophet who arises who is mad, literally crazy, and that's what Shemaiah is saying here, he says, Jeremiah is crazy. And here you are letting this madman proclaim himself a prophet among you. Why have you not arrested this guy? Why have you not punished this guy? And he makes the case that Jeremiah is a false prophet, specifically because Jeremiah wrote this letter to the captivity telling them to get comfortable in the land. Zephaniah, the priest, thus read this letter to Jeremiah. And God responds to this letter through the word of Jeremiah in verses 30 to 32. Then came the word of the Lord unto Jeremiah, saying, Send to all them of the captivity, saying, Thus saith the Lord concerning Shemaiah, Shemaiah, excuse me, the Nehalamite, Because that Shemaiah hath prophesied unto you, and I sent him not, and he caused you to trust in a lie, therefore thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will punish Shemaiah, the Nehalamite, and his seed shall, and he shall not have a man to dwell among this people, neither shall he behold the good that I will do for my people, saith the Lord, because he hath taught rebellion against the Lord. So Jeremiah is not called to reply directly to the priest, but rather to send a letter to the captivity with a prophecy for Shemaiah. And the prophecy is very similar to what we read last week with Hananiah, is it not? That because this man has prophesied falsely, that because he has caused the captivity to trust in a lie, those same words were used last week, because he caused the people and taught them rebellion against the Lord, the same phrase we saw last week, God himself would punish Shemaiah and his seed, that none of his children would behold what God calls the good that I will do for my people. Now, we've already talked about what that good is, right? What is the good word that God will perform upon them? That after 70 years, he will perform his good word and he will return them to the land of promise. So what God is saying is that Shemaiah, that his seed, his children, will never see the day, will never see the day when the nation of Israel returns from captivity. They're going to die. The same thing that happened to Hananiah last week. God says you're going to die within a year. Here, God says you and your seed are going, to be, are going to die before you can see the captivity come to an end. Both of these conflicts end with the destruction of the false prophet. For as God's word testifies, false teachers are good for little else than destruction. I want to take you in a couple directions. I have two written. I might take you to one. I might take you to a third this evening as well. Applications from our time together. Point number one that I would like us to recall. If you seek the Lord, you will find Him. If you seek Him with all your heart. If you seek the Lord with all your heart, He will be found of you. This morning we began our family series. And as we did so, we talked about the nature of God's design, if you recall. We talked about how God has designed this world to function in a certain way. We talked about how God created a spiritual economy to function in, in a certain way. 
We spoke this morning about how God, one of the design elements of God is that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. We spoke about how the soul that sins must die, that he must bear his own sin, the weight of his sin, and how God in his mercy did the only thing possible in order to deliver a man from the weight of his own sin, which was to send his only begotten son, the perfect man, the God-man, to die and to have the wrath of God against the sin of man placed on him. That would be Jesus Christ. What we have here, and I, remember I said how you can study all throughout Scripture and find these principles of God's design all over the place? Here we have one. Here's another one. That any man, woman, or child who seeks the Lord genuinely with all their heart will find him. God is not sitting in the heavens. We've talked about this before. God is not sitting in the heavens laughing at humanity as we grope in the darkness wondering which way God is. Wondering if there is a God and hoping that we might find the key, that obscure, elusive key to knowing him. That's not our God. God has gone out of his way to reveal himself to us, has he not? The heavens declare the glory of God. God has written himself upon our hearts through our conscience. God has given us the, a very large book which contains all things necessary for life and godliness, the very words of God. If God cannot be found of any man, let it be known that this is not because God has not gone out of his way to be found. We read for weeks now God's testimony to his people when he says that I have sent my prophets unto you rising early and seeking you. The illusion there being that the Lord has gone out of his way to reach out to the nation. Of course, we know that God does not sleep, right? But the illusion, the, the metaphor, the idea there is that God, a person that rises early, is trying to make the most of his day. He's trying to make the most of his time. God is squeezing out every ounce of time possible, giving them every opportunity to repent. That's the idea. That he has started very early. In the, he didn't just wait until five minutes before judgment and a prophet pops out and says, repent or doom. You know, that, that didn't happen. God has been sending them prophets for 500 years with a message of obey me, repent of your sin, and it will be well with you. And beyond just the obvious of what we've already spoken, we know that any man who would honestly and fervently seek after God will find him. And I've taken you to this before, but I want to take you there again. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 through 15. I really want you to, to, to get a hold of these verses. Verse 11. For this commandment, which I command thee this day, is not hidden from thee, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that thou shouldst say, Who shall go up for us to heaven and bring it unto us, that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that thou shouldst say, Who shall go over the sea for us and bring it unto us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very nigh unto thee. In thy mouth and in thy heart that thou mayest do it. See, I have set before thee this day life and good and death and evil. Paul actually quotes these verses in Romans chapter 10, the conclusion of which is found in verse 11, whosoever believeth on him 
shall not be ashamed. God wants us to find him. God has stacked the deck in our favor to find him. God has given us every advantage in finding him. If you don't know God as well as you want to know God, I can guarantee you it's not because God is hiding himself from you. If you feel distant from God, I guarantee you it is not because God has moved away from you. If you don't know his word, it's not because he hasn't given it to you. If you don't know his expectations, it's not because he hasn't told you what they are. God is nigh. He has drawn nigh. He is seeking us. And he says, if you seek me, you will find me if you search with all your heart. But that's the key, isn't it? We have to seek him with our whole heart. We have to seek him in faith. We have to seek him on his terms, not on our terms. And if we don't seek him on his terms, we're not going to find him. And so we live in a world which is convinced that God is a fairy tale. And they say, if your God is real, why has he gone so far out of his way to hide himself? And there's even a portion of pseudo-Christianity that says that God hides himself on purpose. They acknowledge a God and they say God hides himself on purpose because he intentionally wants to trip men up so that only the most astute and spiritually engaged will find him. It's not what my Bible says. My Bible says on the testimony of God's word that if I seek him, I will find him if I search with all my heart that the word of God is nigh unto me. Now, all of these principles are very helpful as it relates to the word of God, which is nigh unto us. That those who are in a culture like ours, we know we can still relatively easily find the truth. Bibles are everywhere. Churches are everywhere. That doesn't mean truth is being taught in all of them. But teaching is everywhere. And of course, we have internet and radio and all of these conveniences today as well. But this concept also helps us, not just in our personal lives, that you can know that if you seek the Lord with all your heart, you will find him. And if you're not finding him, check your heart. But this also helps us as it relates to that time, timeless age-old question. What about people who don't have Bibles in their own language? What about people who don't have churches on in every town? What about the millions upon millions of people who literally do not even have a Bible translated in their language? What does God do with them? And we often speak of this in regard to three different principles. Number one, foundational principle number one that we know. God's word is very clear. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes unto the Father but by him. John 14, 6. Number two, all men are without excuse that God has given men enough revelation to know not just of his existence, but of his power and of his Godhead. Romans chapter one, verse 20 tells us that. That God has revealed himself to all men in that way. Third, Jeremiah 29 tells us that if a man is seeking God, God will be found of him if he searches with all his heart. Whether that man is in the deepest, darkest jungles in Africa or whether that man is sitting in his, his house in Buffalo, Minnesota, if he seeks God with all his heart, he will find him. Now, 
How God does that is his own prerogative. Will God send a missionary? Will he send a message in a bottle? Whatever, I don't know. That's God's business. But if a man seeks God with all his heart, he will find him. We know this. One of three foundational principles as it relates to man's eternal state. Second point. First point, if you seek the Lord with all your heart, he will be found of you. Second, God thinks on his people for good. To we who are found in Christ by grace through faith, even we who perhaps, as we spoke two weeks ago, when we talked about late stage submission, might be living under some measure of consequences for our own actions, even we who might be suffering under the trials and temptations of the enemy that uh, God has allowed to sift us like wheat, even we who are struggling through times of uncertainty, through times of fear, through times of sorrow, even when we cannot feel it, even when we cannot see it, this we know. We need to remember that the thoughts that God thinks towards his people are thoughts of peace and not of evil, that there is an expected end. Israel had begun a terrible time in their history where they were removed from their land of promise for 70 years. And yet as they go through this circumstance, which is rightly called judgment, God reminds them that this is also chastening because he loves them and that he is doing something in them for good. That this chastening will bring about a blessing in the latter end and that the people will see the goodness of God upon them when his purposes are satisfied in them. And this same principle compelled Paul in Romans chapter 8 to write in regard to our relationship to God through the Spirit of God. In Romans 8, beginning in verse 26, the Bible says this, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. God's thoughts toward us are good to bring about an expected end. In the times when our infirmities are felt the most, when we are weak, when we are unsure, when we are tired, when we are confused, when we don't even know what to pray, Paul says that's okay because the Spirit of God knows and he makes intercession for you. He helps us in our weakness that even when we don't know what to pray, the Spirit of God is interceding for us. He's praying for us. And we hold this promise close to our hearts that God thinks on me for good. Confusing though that may be. Sorrowful though my circumstances may be. God will work these circumstances together for good to those who are seeking him, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Job said it this way, when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. This was the message that God had for the captivity on this day in Jeremiah 29. I do believe I want to call you to one more thought. As Jeremiah began to write this message to these people, one of the things he said for them 
in verse 7 is this. And seek the peace of the city whither I have caused you to be carried away captives and pray unto the Lord for it, for in the peace thereof shall ye have peace. Pray for the peace of Babylon. Pray for the peace of Babylon because Babylon's peace is your peace. One of the things that we regularly pray for at Legacy Baptist Church, it was prayed for tonight, it was prayed for this morning, is that God would bless this nation and give this nation mercy and bless us with time. We are sojourners. We are strangers in this place. We are pilgrims on a journey. This world is not our home. We are just a passing through, right? And yet, Jeremiah told the people, settle in, have influence, Pray for the peace of your land in which you are a stranger because their peace is your peace. Let us not fail to remember that though we are, this is not our home. This is where the Lord has called us to settle for this time. So pray for the peace of this land. So get involved in the peace of this land. So do do your part, not just as we talk about the world to come, but You know, as we live in this Babylon, we reach out to people, we share the gospel of Christ, we we can pray for the peace of our land because the peace of our land is our peace as well. And this is the concept that we glean from 1 Timothy chapter 2 where where Paul calls for, for Timothy to command the church to pray for their leaders that we may lead peaceable lives and godliness. Pray for your leaders, pray for your land, pray for your city, pray for your neighborhoods, pray for your communities, make your communities better. This is the the place that God has placed you in this time that we may live peaceable lives and godliness. As we consider these points this evening, the question is, how are you doing? Does God seem distant to you Are you struggling to find him? Well, this we know. Whenever God cannot be found of us, it is not because God is hiding from us. It's not because God has not made himself findable. It is not because God is obscuring our ability to know him. Rather, it's because there's something wrong with our seeking. Either we're not seeking or our heart is not there to seek him with our hearts. We have not humbled ourselves. We have not shed ourselves of ourselves to come to God on his terms rather than on our own. And what about your circumstances? Does it seem like God does not know or perhaps does not care? As if you're barely keeping your head above water? As, as if tomorrow is darkness, you don't know what it is and it's causing uh, anxiety, it's causing fear? It's causing frustration. Well, here's the thing. God thinks on his people for good. He has an expected end. We know that he knows because he took on flesh. He experienced everything you and I have experienced. And we know that he cares because he has said he cares. I know the thoughts that I think toward you, God said. They're thoughts of peace, not of evil. 
And all who have lived through such days in faith can testify that God's word is true, that God's word has never been broken, that our cries have never once fallen upon God's deaf ears, that God will never cease to be faithful unto his own. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.